0: Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle, and Lolita was not able to join us today. She got pulled away to her W-2 job, which we're working on getting her out of. So it'll just be Jay and I today. Before we get started, please head over to our website, aptcapitalgroup.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with me on our website as well. All right, time to get into our show. Today on the show, we have Jay Scott. How are you doing, Jay? Hey, how's it going, Kyle? Doing very well. Before we head in the interview, here's a little bit about Jay. Jay is the author of four books on real estate investing with over 250,000 copies sold. Jay is an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. So we're looking forward to today's show. But before we dive in, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I am a reformed corporate engineer type guy. Back in 2008, my wife and I left the corporate world, decided to start a family and the lifestyle we were living out out in Silicon Valley, traveling all the time, working 80, 100 hours a week just wasn't conducive to having kids and and having a good family life. So we decided to leave that behind, figure out something else that would allow us to prioritize family and, and lifestyle over work. And Back in 2008, we kind of fell into real estate. It was it was pretty much an accident. But here we are 12 years later, and we are full-time investors, mostly real estate. We've done a whole lot of house flipping, rentals, lending notes. And most recently, over the last uh, year or so, we've moved into the multifamily space.
1: Well, awesome. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is that you did not start in the multifamily syndication space, but tell us why you transitioned.
2: Well, it's interesting. So, in 2008 when we first started to think about getting into real estate investing, that was actually our goal. So, my my original plan was to buy and sell apartment buildings. So, 2008 we moved to Atlanta, it was literally the depths depths of the Great Recession. Atlanta was one of the hardest hit markets in the country, and what we were finding was there just weren't a lot of multifamily deals. There was just there wasn't a lot of transaction volume. So, lots of sellers that wanted to sell but the buyers wouldn't, weren't buying at those prices. And so without transaction volume, I mean, we just didn't think we could find a, a decent deal. We didn't know what we were doing as well. So we, we decided to start in the single family space. And it's been in the back of my mind for 10 years now that uh, I'd love to get into uh, apartment investing. And finally, about a year ago, I hooked up with somebody who ended up being my partner and gave me the opportunity to kind of jump in with, with both feet. And so uh, it, it's something that I've been looking forward to doing for a decade and finally had The opportunity.
1: Awesome. And, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, single family versus multifamily. A lot of people do get started with single family first. I'm one of those people, but I also wish I would have gotten straight into multifamily. Do you wish the same thing or are you glad that you went through that process of single family and flipping homes to get some experience in real estate in general?
2: I try not to have any regrets. I, I, my, my path has uh, has led me to where I am now and we've been very successful and things have gone well. Um, certainly, I can, I can look back and say I, I wish I would have started a multifamily, maybe not in 2008 or 9 or 10, but 2014, 15, 16, there, there were some opportunities that I kind of passed by because I was so focused on other aspects. Investing. But again, I'd rather look at it as all the things that I've done over the past 12 years have kind of led me to where I am and have given me the experience and and the expertise to kind of really start tackling this now. So certainly I wish I would have started sooner, but I don't really have any regrets.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I just know that I wouldn't have learned a lot of the things along the way, you know, in the single family space or even my previous career if I would have gotten into it uh, sooner. So probably would have made a lot more mistakes too. So there's two ways to look at that. So let's talk about your first multifamily syndication then I, I believe it was a 20 million dollar class b deal talk a little bit about it
2: yeah. So I teamed up with two who, they were friends of mine at the time, Ashley and Kyle Wilson from Bar Down Investments. And uh, we met a couple years ago and we've been talking about working together for a few years. And then finally about a year, year and a half ago, they've done more multifamily than I have. And uh, they convinced me to kind of jump on board. And didn't wasn't hard to convince me, but convinced me to kind of join them and, and start looking for some multifamily deals. We were looking at four markets and ultimately after, it took about a year But in February of 2020, we found uh, what looked to be a really good deal in Houston, Texas, so downtown Houston. As you said, 150-unit property, about $20 million. We put that under contract in mid-February. We signed a PSA in late February. Early March, we were getting on an airplane to fly out and start due diligence when COVID hit. And literally the day or two before due diligence was to start, COVID got really bad. Things started shutting down. We didn't know where things were headed, what was going on. Um, At that point, none of our earnest money was hard. So we backed out of the deal and said, hey, we'll just wait and see. About three months later, the seller of that property still didn't have it under contract, came back to us in May timeframe. Asked us if we were still interested. We ran the numbers. We ended up negotiating about an eleven percent discount off our original purchase price. So we had gotten it down to about nineteen five, nineteen six, and then closed on it about a month ago in in September two thousand twenty. So
1: syndication is not a quick process. You know, I, I mean, you took us a, a year to get the deal and then nine months or eight months to close it. And, you know, I, I did the same thing. And it's uh, it's one of those things that it takes a lot of time and effort, but ultimately it is worth it. And, that you know, you kind of get that snowball effect once, once you do get those first couple of deals. But I think it's important, especially in today's market, to take your time and pick the right deal, not just rush into any deal.
2: Absolutely. I I tell people all the time that real estate is very much one of those things that 95% of people never do a deal, but the other 5% do a lot of deals. There are very few people in this business that do one deal because after you get that first deal everything, like you said, snowballs. So the second deal is so much easier than the first, and the third is so much easier than the second. So if you can get to that first deal, you're probably going to do five or 10 or 15 or 50 deals afterwards. So for us, it was very much just getting over that hump of the first deal. In the multifamily space, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, a lot of it is is relationships. And that time that we spent, that year that we spent, 18 months maybe, that we spent, it wasn't just looking at deals. It was building relationships. It was meeting brokers. It was talking to other investors. Uh, it was running numbers. So it, it wasn't that we were just spent a year or a year and a half waiting to find the deal. We were actually making progress during that year, year and a half. So by the time we actually found the deal, we were much better positioned. It wasn't just luck. It was we were we spent eighteen months building to that point where we found that deal and, and building relationships.
1: Talk about why you decided to join a team and and partner up with people you you have a ton of experience in real estate in general, you're definitely looked at as a thought leader in the real estate industry. And you did go it alone in single family. So why bring in partners with multifamily?
2: Yeah, when I started in single family, I was fortunate to have some cash and I was able to, to leverage my own resources. Most of the risk was on myself and my wife, maybe some of our lenders. We never used private money until we felt like we were comfortable enough with our skills and our experience that we weren't putting other people's money at too much risk. When I moved into the multifamily space, that was kind of the, the, in the back of my mind the entire time was that uh, for syndications, typically you're relying on 70, 75% of your capital coming from other people, other private investors. And these are people that I know, that trust me, that, that I want to have a long term relationship with. And so I felt that to be the best steward of their capital, I should be working with people that are more experienced than I am on at least the first few deals. So for me, it was a pretty obvious decision that I should be teaming up with people that I would feel more comfortable taking other people's money and could could feel comfortable that that my investors' money was safe. Additionally, Again, multifamily is a different beast than than single family simply by virtue of the fact that there aren't as many deals out there. It's very relationship driven. Brokers, and this this goes back to the, if you can get the first deal, you can probably do a whole lot more. A lot of times, brokers don't want to talk to you if you haven't proven previously that you can perform. And this is one of those chicken and egg problems. Like a broker doesn't want to give you a chance until you've proven you can do a deal, but you can't do a deal until you've proven to a broker that that to, to give you a chance. And so I knew that the team that I surrounded myself with had some experience and they had some ins with brokers. And and so they could provide more credibility than I could. I mean, it, it was funny because I figured, yeah, I'd start talking to brokers. I'd mention I've done 500 flips. I've done $60 million in deals. I've written four books and they'd be like, great, let's do some deals. They didn't care. The fact that I had never done a large multifamily deal was all they cared about. And I could have done 10,000 single family houses. I could have written 50 books. But at the end of the day, they wanted to know that that the person that they were hooking up with, the the seller, was likely to perform. And doing a lot of single family deals didn't necessarily give me that credibility. So bringing in a team or the team bringing me in, it gave me more credibility because they had already had a few deals under their belts.
1: How'd you go about the process of vetting your team, finding your team, and really selecting that team? I I think a lot of people struggle with, you know, how do I become part of a team?
2: Yeah. So I was very cautious. I always approach partnerships very cautiously. One of my golden rules for partnerships is you should know the person before you jump into a relationship with them, especially in something like a multifamily deal because that relationship isn't... If I were to partner, let's say with you on a single family flip, worst case, it's, it's three months of hell where you and I don't get along. We don't see eye to eye and then in three months, the deal's done and, and we're out. But a multifamily deal or any, any buy and hold deal isn't a three-month deal. It's, it's gonna be a three-year, a five-year, a seven-year, or a 10-year deal. And so that's a relationship. I mean, that's essentially a marriage. And nobody's gonna go and, and meet a, a woman or a man and decide after the first date that they're ready to get married, or at least they probably shouldn't. And it's the same way in, in, in the buy and hold multifamily space. If you're gonna partner with somebody, build that relationship first. Make sure that your goals are aligned. Make sure that your skills are complementary. Basically, um, you're good at the things they're not, they're good at the things you're not. So that you have a solid foundation, you have a strong team, and so when I met Kyle and Ashley, we spent we we first met in 2016, and we didn't really start getting getting started working together until 2019. So we had three years of of relationship under our belt, knowing that we had the same goals, and knowing that we had the same work ethic, and knowing that we had the same the same requirements for for integrity and reputation, and and uh, knowing that we had complementary skill sets, and so by the time the opportunity came that we said, okay, let's do this together. I was comfortable that they were the right partners. And so what I would recommend to anybody out there is just get to know the people, let them meet your family, you meet their family, because at the end of the day, this is is a a relationship. You're going to be spending a whole lot of time with these people over the next few years. And you don't want to waste five years of your life being miserable because you picked the wrong partner.
1: Right, and you know a lot of people just pick a partner because they want to do that first deal. And if you pick the wrong partner, three years in, you're going to be really wishing you never did a deal. So you know, definitely take your time when it comes to picking a partner.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would rather push off doing my first deal for a year or two, knowing I have the right partner and I'll be successful, than rush into something and just get something under contract quickly with with the wrong team.
1: Yep, absolutely. So, what are some lessons learned from your first syndication?
2: Well, it was interesting. So. It's great. We have a really strong team. I've always been kind of the spreadsheet guy. I'm the numbers guy. I'm not necessarily a people person. Kyle Wilson, who is one of my partners, he's very much the same. Very analytical. Kind of sits his computer behind the computer. And then Ashley Wilson, who is the lead on our deals. She's the people person. She's the asset manager. She's the um, she's the construction manager. And so for me, it, this was an opportunity because I'm so comfortable with the spreadsheets and with the numbers and doing the underwriting. This was an opportunity for me to really see how things in the field worked. And so that was very eye-opening. So asset management on single family deals, either whether rentals or flips, is pretty simple. Everything's straightforward. You expect going in that asset management and construction management is basically the same as single family, but just at a a different scale. But that's not the the case. I mean, there are a lot more dependencies, there are a lot more critical paths, there are a lot more things that can go wrong. and, And I kind of went in with this attitude that multifamily is just an extension, a scale of single family. And what I found is it's a completely different beast. And so, here we are a year and a half in, and we're a couple months into our first project. And every day, I'm kind of learning things that, that surprise me because multifamily, again, isn't just a, a scaled except, a extension of single family. It really is its own little world that has its own rules and, and lots of dependencies that you don't think about until you actually see them.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you know, we focus on asset management and think it's a huge piece and the biggest piece to uh, multifamily really. But I always say you're buying a multi-million dollar business when you're buying a single family home. It's really not like that. And, and there's a ton of moving parts when it comes to multifamily. You have your own staff that you need to manage and it's a living, breathing operation day in and day out. So you definitely need to have that experience, which is great. Do you ever foresee yourself being a lead sponsor or, or always being kind of a part of a team like you have right now?
2: I love my team. And at this point, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but I suspect that for the foreseeable future, we are going to be working together as a team. We're going to scale together. We're going to grow together. Again, a great team is one that everybody has a very complementary set of skills and and every role is filled and filled well. And in multifamily, it's very hard to do everything, or at least it's very hard to do everything well enough that your investor should be comfortable that you're the one person. So, you're always going to surround yourself with a team. Then the question becomes, well, if I surround myself with the team, am I the lead? Is somebody else the lead? For me, that's actually not important. I mean, that that's just a word. And so we have four people on our team right now. And technically, we consider Ashley the lead. But that's it, it's it, it's meaningless at the end of the day. We're a team, and and we're all in this together, and and we're sharing the risk, and we're sharing the equity, and we're sharing the rewards, and we're sharing the stress. And so, whether I'll ever be a lead, maybe I will, but it would probably be with the same people. It would just be taking be taking the lead on a different project, and and sharing the responsibilities. So, I guess I, I don't really think about it from that perspective. When you're part of a team, certainly there's there's somebody that needs to be that that key focus and, and that person that, that's, that's considered the lead. But a team is a team and, and you're always going to need a good team when, when you're doing deals like this.
1: Yep. Everyone has their role and they need to play that part. So what do you foresee in your crystal ball that I know is perfect over <laughs> yeah. the next five to 10 years for multifamily? You got a lot going on in, with the economy right now. You get the election and you know just a lot of things, a lot of moving parts. What are your thoughts?
2: Wow, five to ten years. I'm I'm struggling right now with the next three to six months. So, well, let's talk about some general trend. Let's talk about interest rates. So, interest rates play a a significant role in in multifamily investing for obvious reasons. I foresee that we're going to have low interest rates for at least the next three to five years. My reasoning for that is the biggest reason is that the Fed has come out and said they're targeting inflation over the next few years. The best way to achieve inflation is to keep interest rates low or even lower interest rates if it's possible, which is not easily possible these days. But just the fact that the Fed is saying that they're targeting higher inflation, and generally speaking, the Fed gets what they want, that tells me that that interest rates will be kept low for the next few years. The other thing is that with our increased federal deficit and debt, it's going to be very hard to service that national debt if we raise interest rates too much. So we're going to have to figure out a way to either reduce the debt or restructure that debt before we can start raising interest rates, which I don't see happening in the next couple of years. So all said and done, I I think interest rates are going to be low for the next several years, which is going to be good for multifamily in general. I think that we're going to see cap rates increasing. I think that we're going to see risk spreads increasing somewhat. I think right now, a lot of investors, because the market has been so strong and, and There's been so many good places to put capital for the past few years that uh, cap rates have been relatively low compared to interest rates. So that spread is is relatively low because people have lots of opportunities. So I think moving forward, um, we're going to see that risk spread increase. So even with low interest rates, I think we're going to see cap rates kind of expand a little bit, not a lot. Maybe I, I mean typical rule of thumb is, is is 10 basis points a year. Maybe we see a little bit more than that over the next couple of years, but I think we will see expanding cap rates. So um, is that going to be good for investors or bad for investors? It depends on what side of the coin you're on. If you're always buying and, and selling, well, there's going to be good and bad with that. Historically speaking, I mean, depending on what part of the the, the economic cycle you're in, different classes of, of multifamily do differently. Over the next five or 10 years, we'll probably go through a full cycle again. Typically, you go through a full economic cycle every six or seven or eight years. So I think there'll be times when class A is good and times when class B is good and times when class C is good. Right now, I think COVID is kind of turn things all around. And typically during a, a downturn in the economy, we're looking to move down in class. So we see the highest rank compressions in the class A units. We see less rank compression in class B. And we see a lot of stability in class C because, well, people need a place to live and they're going to go to the cheapest housing um, during a downturn. But I think what we've seen with COVID is that with the the rent moratoriums, or the, I'm sorry, the eviction moratoriums, there's a lot more risk in those Class C properties. And so I think over the next year, at least, we're going to be focusing more on the Class B. A year ago, I would have said if, if we saw a downturn like this, that Class C was the place to be. But just given the eviction moratorium and some other things going on in the industry, I really really like the class B units. You're, you get the decent tenants that that are can still pay. Um, if they can't pay, they're probably moving down in class, but you also avoid the big rent compression in, in the class A units. So we really like the class B. And we like the class B and the class A areas. So that's kind of what we're focused on. So interest rates... We'll stay low. Cap rates will expand a little bit. And we really like class B units. And, and that's, again, the next three to five years. Five to 10 years, I think it's anybody's guess.
1: So with inflation comes you know, increasing of everything, right? So you would assume that real estate would increase. Wouldn't that effectively lower cap rates?
2: So well, it, it might lower. It, it might increase prices. That doesn't necessarily mean cap rates have changed. So if NO, uh, prices change based on cap rates and NOI, cap rates can can expand. NOI can increase, and prices can still go up if NOI outpaces those those cap rate uh, that cap rate expansion. So I see both happening. I, I see that we will see some cap rate expansion uh, again. Just just that risk spread increasing. But I think we will see from inflation, we'll see enough rent growth that prices will still go up. So just because cap rates expand as cap rates go up doesn't mean prices are necessarily going to go down if there's enough inflation in rents.
1: Okay. Got it. For people just getting started right now, it's kind of a difficult time. Obviously, you got the pandemic, there's going to be even more fear set in when you're just getting started. Any advice for someone getting started in the multifamily space at this time?
2: Yeah, I, I would say be very cognizant of location. I think one of the things that COVID has taught us is that a black swan event like this can kind of change the landscape in a lot of ways. Nobody would have thought that uh, there'd be 20,000 vacant units in, in New York City um, at this point, no matter where the economy was, but that's what we're saying. You wouldn't have thought people would be fleeing San Francisco, one of the, the, the most uh, stable housing markets in the country over the last 30 years, but people are fleeing San Francisco. You wouldn't think that Florida during a downturn would be doing well because typically uh, highly tourist-based industries do do poorly during a downturn. Uh, but people are flocking to Florida. People are flocking to Texas. So I think COVID has kind of changed the landscape in terms of where people are moving, where there's population growth. So I would recommend for anybody that's starting to invest now, be forward-thinking. Think about how the markets are changing. Think about how population trends are changing. Typically. Uh, we, we like to say in the multifamily space that there are three things you focus on, population growth, employment growth, and wage growth. And so I'm going to add a fourth one there that that we're very cognizant of these days, and that's employment diversity, trying to stay away from areas that, that are reliant on a single industry. Because what we found is that any single industry could be put to risk or put at risk very easily if something like a COVID happens. So make sure you're looking at employment diversity and make sure you're following the the trends based on not necessarily historical or census-based trends, but based on what's happened in the last three to six months. Now, all that said... I would say that that COVID is providing an opportunity. There are some markets that are somewhat more depressed than they probably otherwise would be. We're seeing some areas, and not to get political at all, but there are certain areas based on on political ideology that were more serious about shutting down during the during the pandemic. Those areas are seeing higher unemployment, and so they're probably seeing better opportunities to buy deals. Where in a year or two, when we're past the the virus things are going to bounce back relatively quickly. So there are a lot of areas that right now, they look like they're struggling, but they're probably only struggling because of how they reacted to the, to the, to the virus and could see a, fa- a faster than normal bounce back in the next year or two. And we really like those areas.
1: Great. All right. We're going to get into our final four questions. Are you ready? Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by Bullpen. Bullpen is an online marketplace where you can find and hire top-notch commercial real estate analysts on an hourly or part-time basis to support your deals. The analysts on Bullpen have various skill sets from office brokerage in Topeka to multifamily development in New York and everything in between. We use Bullpen as a second set of eyes on all of our underwriting. Find your next analyst using Bullpen at www.bullpenre.com. Use our promo code APT Capital when you sign up to receive a $100 credit towards your first hire. What is the one tool in real estate investing that you cannot do without?
2: So for me, it's Excel. (laughs) And I know it's going to be different for everybody, but I spend probably half my life running numbers and spreadsheets and and tracking data. So for me, it's definitely Excel.
1: Okay. Tell us about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners?
2: Biggest mistake by far is I was way too transactional when I started in this business. Back in 2008, people know that I've done many hundreds of flips and they think that's really cool. I look back and I I regret doing so many flips. I I wish I would have taken 50% of those or 25% or 10% of those deals and held them as long-term rentals. So by far the biggest mistake I've made in this business is, is selling too many properties and not holding enough.
1: Mm, Great advice. What is it you need to do now to grow your life to the next level?
2: So for me, I love that question, by the way, because too, too often we, we focus on how do I grow my business to the next level or my net worth to the next level. And I think it's very important that people don't think of it necessarily in terms of finances. For me, it's figuring out, and I'm, I'm constantly struggling with this, as I'm sure we all are, is that work-life balance. So we got into real estate investing because it gave us some time freedom, the ability to focus on family. And, and so I've been very fortunate over the last 12 years to be able to focus on my family. But even I struggle day to day, providing as much focus on my family and, and being 100% present as I would like to be. So for me, I think to really get to the next level personally is working even harder on, on uh, making sure that I'm ever present with my family when I'm with my family and, and, and balancing work and, and life better.
1: Yeah, so important. That's what it's all about. So where can people find out more about you?
2: So I am on Facebook at jscottinvestor, Instagram at uh, jscott underscore one, two, three, flip. If you want to find out more about me, jscott.com. If you're interested in investing with me, investwithj.com. And if you just want to reach out and, and, and connect with me, my email is the letter j at jscott.com.
1: Perfect, Jay. Thank you for coming on. Love the transition from single family to multifamily. And it definitely sounds like you did it the right way. Took your time and built the right team. So congratulations on your success and thanks for being on the show.
0: Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to aptcapitalgroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.